Thanks be to God for all of you, all of you gathered to enrich the experience that we have to celebrate and give praise to Almighty God. And thanks be to God for all of you, the after-school choir. Thank you for being a ministry to us and ministers in our midst through the power of your voice. May God be praised by and through you. Our lesson from the Christian scriptures, the New Testament comes to us from Paul's letter to the Romans. It can be found in the eighth chapter, beginning with the 26th verse. Listen now for God's word to God's people. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good, for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. When we arrive at the point 
of joys and concerns each week during our Wednesday morning prayer services in Buchanan Chapel, Donna consistently introduces her concerns in this manner. According to today's report from the city of Chicago, last week there were 12 murders, 40 criminal sexual assaults, 235 robberies, 154 cases of aggravated battery, 43 burglaries, 508 thefts, 612 cases of motor vehicle theft, making a total of 1,704 incidents, not including the additional 71 shooting incidents. And we're barely into the second quarter of the year. She then hands a small piece of paper on which these statistics have been handwritten to the worship leader. And she urges us to pray that God will use us to help find some solution to the terrible violence that grips our city and cities, towns, and countrysides and places everywhere. Her consistent message her consistent witness amplifies this truth that we experience in so many different ways. We live in an alienated world. Add to that our rising awareness of the increase in and negative effects of isolation, and our sense of alienation is compounded in her recent article critiquing the self-love phenomenon as magnifying the condition of loneliness, journalist Maital Eyal cites a 2021 study commissioned by Cigna that found that nearly 80% of adults from the ages of 18 to 24 repeated feeling, reported, I should say, feeling lonely. The study itself also reports that adults of all ages with physical health issues are approximately 50% more likely to be lonely than those with strong physical health. The additional statistics are devastating across demographics. My perspective on this is that our society places an outside emphasis on escapism and individualism, be it through self-love or the renewed popularity of stoicism or certain other trends which breed further alienation and isolation that fuels cycles of violence and dis-ease. Eyal writes, Today, we live in a climate where needing help can evoke shame and embarrassment, where cutthroat competition takes precedence over compassionate collaboration, and where self-sufficiency is celebrated as the ultimate achievement. To navigate the harsh terrain of radical individualism, self-love has emerged as our tool of survival. But it can come at a cost, especially when the type of self-love we turn to is the kind that has been manipulated by corporate ad campaigns and social media. 
In its commodified form, self-love is not really self-love at all. Instead, it's more like self-sabotage, convincing us to hyper-focus on ourselves at the expense of connecting with others. There will never be enough spa treatments, microbrewery tours, or sleep-ins to fix what is broken within and among us. Now, to be fair, I am not advocating for opposite extremes. For example, I agree with Atoll in acknowledging that self-love is a powerful tool and it can be used for good or bad, for connection or disconnection and that an indication of its healthy practice is when we feel connected to our bodies and our communities. On this renewed interest in stoicism that's cropped up, it must be said that the essence of what the ancients and what many practitioners today appreciate about its philosophy is that its emphasis on self-mastery and conquering our limits is meant to, to contribute to the well-being of society at large through our careful discernment of what is within and what is outside of our control. And on the significance of the individual, the self in relationship with the whole, I treasure the verse of 13th century Sufi poet Rumi, which says, you are not a drop in the ocean. You are the ocean in a drop. We do contain multitudes. Rather, what I find corrective within Paul's word to the Romans is his determination to inspire, equip, and connect a community of believers who, even in the experience of their own suffering and persecution, are joined together in their weakness by the all-encompassing power of God who names, claims, and sustains them. I've recently been invited to explore with peers what might be resources for finding love and connection in an alienated world. And so I'm pleased that this passage appears for us this morning to serve as a beacon. Paul's pen in making his case to the community of believers in Rome that the presence of Gentiles among Jewish followers of Jesus demonstrates rather than dilutes God's redemptive plan, ultimately makes the case that Christ's love in us, Christ's love with us, and Christ's love through us, come what may, is the antidote to isolation and alienation. Christ in us. Christ's love with us, Christ's love through us, come what may. For Paul, divine power resides in the act of Jesus taking on the cross. 
The paradox of the manifestation of God as a body that suffers and dies. So that even as we experience suffering in this life, awash in our weaknesses and vulnerabilities, we are met with the loving presence of our God who knows what it is to suffer. Our weakness is not a barrier to God, but a point of encounter with God. The weakness of it all, so to speak, is important. Paul grounds his words in community, even as so many contemporary Christians champion his message as if it were some part of some sort of individualistic self-help plan of salvation. It's the we that matters, especially if we are indeed desperate to structure our lives in contrast to the burdens of alienation and isolation rooted in hyper-individualism that dominates our society and our worldview. And it's the we-ness of all that the church in this day and age is uniquely positioned to amplify and to celebrate, even as it so often struggles to envision and achieve this aim. We, as the church, can choose to stem the tides of alienation and isolation and confess and repent, mindful of all the ways the church has indeed functioned as a source of these ills. Buying into the myths of rugged individualism and the quest for power over instead of power with. God calls us to be a model of healthy weeness in the world. Not every institution in society is currently struggling to convince and convincingly communicate an inclusive we. If, and given the numbers from this week's box office, most likely you are a part of the if <laughs> that have ventured out to the cinema recently, you'll likely have been greeted by the likes of Academy Award-winning actress Nicole Kidman, striding across the screen in a gray Michael Kors suit, bedazzled with pinstripes to declare, we come to this place for magic. We come to AMC theaters to laugh, to cry, to care. Because we need that, all of us. The indescribable feeling we get when the lights begin to dim and we go somewhere we've never been before. Not just entertained, but somehow reborn. Together, dazzling images on a huge silver screen. Sound that I can feel. Somehow, heartbreak feels good in a place like this. Our heroes feel like the best part of us and stories feel perfect and powerful because here they are. 
Somehow, heartbreak feels good in a place like this. Might Paul have resonated with this sentiment to describe the aspirations of a believing community? As we think about church today, we ought to feel that our individual stories and experiences of heartbreak, weakness, and vulnerability would be at least as compelling to us as some sort of connective tissue as what we could expect from the endeavors of corporate shareholders churning out vehicles of entertainment, yes? Too often, for many, that experience is no. Too often we have regarded and or experienced church and or Christian community as the place of pretense and stagnation, a place where the most challenging truths of our individual stories find no company in the presence of others, where we will not be expected to have our presence bear any significance to a whole that is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and holy, H-O-L-Y, unique to the substance of its parts, where we feel required to wear a happy face and pretend that all is well within us in order to conform, as if conformity were the only stake involved in being truly Christian. Church should not be the place where we deny the existence of suffering, especially when the movie theater of all places doesn't require this of us. Paul meant for the Romans and ultimately for us to encounter God's awe-inducing power, searching our hearts, cradling the Holy Spirit within us, stirring up what God intends to inspire within us, to enliven us to live into God's purposes for us in and beyond the world. Paul invites all even today, to recognize our kinship with Christ as the firstborn among family, a family of belonging, to feel within the marrow of our bones that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that in its wake we are bound to one another. While I emphasize the importance of valuing community over individualism as essential to overcoming isolation and alienation, I also value the importance of individual experience as a part of what shapes community. As Kidman reminds us, our heroes feel like the best part of us. And so, if we're asked to consider Paul as one of our heroes, by virtue of the fact that we're hearing his words today, and we ought to reflect on aspects of his story that influence his message. Now, the mere notion for some 
however, of Paul as a heroic figure is challenging. I mean, have you read Paul? In portions of his own writing, and even in some literature about him, Paul comes across as strident, arrogant, presumptuous, mansplainy, and apostlesplaining, to tediously coin a term. The fact alone that Paul, formerly Saul, was not among the 12 apostles, yet audaciously argued against crucial elements of Peter's gospel. Yes, that Peter, whom Jesus dubbed the rock among his disciples, speaks to this unease. Some even argue that Paul's past as an entitled religious authority might have carried over post-conversion. I think back to a conversation on Paul nearly two decades ago among my clergy covenant group, in which many of us grumbled about preparing to teach copious amounts of Paul to our adult Sunday school classes. One among us cheerfully shouted, oh no, I love Paul. See, if you read Paul as a mystic, Emily is Southern. <laughs> Before Paul, was Paul, Paul was Saul. Backstory. As a Pharisee, a religious authority in Judea, Saul was infamous for his active pursuit and persecution of Jesus' followers. The book of Acts in the New Testament even links him to the stoning of Stephen, a deacon in the early church in Jerusalem. Paul was well-versed in Mosaic law and enforced rigid separation between Jews and Gentiles to preserve purity requirements. That is, before Saul was struck suddenly by a power that, as the benediction says, could do infinitely more than he could ask or imagine. One day, en route to Damascus, in search of more Jesus followers, to ravage, as it says in Acts, Saul and his traveling companions were met with a blinding light. It startled him enough to knock him to the ground. And amid the spectacle of light came the presence of the resurrected Christ, crying out in a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The voice instructed Saul to be led to Damascus, where he would receive further instruction. After three days of blindness while sheltered there, Saul's sight was restored by a disciple named Ananias. Saul experienced conversion and was baptized. Now filled with zeal to proclaim the good news, Saul partnered with other disciples to advance what had been known as the way, and his name eventually was changed from Saul to Paul. Convicted by the Holy Spirit to expand the gospel among Gentiles, Paul would conduct three missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire, establishing house churches throughout. He would endure imprisonment, 
shipwreck, starvation, and subterfuge along the way. It was nothing so ordinary as movie magic that transformed Paul, but the mighty power of God to turn him upside down and inside out. To consider Paul's stubbornly audacious tone exhibited in much of his writing is also to appreciate his miraculous and mystical encounter with the triune God, creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit. His experience of God's mystical realm became the way he understood himself and the world. It ignited his passion. It shaped his story. It assured him that a heart broken is not a heart lost. New Testament scholar Michael Gorman describes the function of such story as narrative spirituality, by which he means a spirituality that tells a story, a dynamic life with God that corresponds in some way to the divine story. From this understanding comes the primary concept that Gorman introduces to the field of the study of Paul, cruciformity. Simply stated, cruciformity to be shaped like the cross, is in sum what Paul is about and what the communities of the Messiah that he founded and or nurtured were also about. The experience by which the church, at least according to Paul, stands or falls. To elaborate, Gorman defines cruciformity as the, quote, all-encompassing integrating narrative reality of Paul's life and thought, expressed and experienced in every dimension of his being, bringing together the diverse and potentially divergent aspects of that experience. Now, at this point, I'll borrow Paul's words to ask, so what are we to say about all these things? What's the point? For one thing, it is to say that to be beloved community in Christ is not to deny, diminish, or ignore the realities of suffering. To pretend that we are neither subject to nor complicit in the existence of suffering is to deny the presence of God in our healing and in our call to repentance. For Christ, in his experience as a body in the world on a divine mission of teaching, healing, feeding, and commissioning his followers, there was no way out but through, even to the cross. Saul, as oppressor, wielded the violence of the lash. Paul, as apostle, knew both its sinfulness and its limits. Christ's grip on his life is where the lash was impotent and the power of God omnipotent. To this end, it is not that suffering is to be understood as divine. 
It is to say that even in the midst of suffering, it is the life-giving presence of God bathing us in love. Paul rejoiced that we, yes, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us with an exuberance that gives us permission today to end our addiction to relying on our individual Herculean efforts to soothe the complex pain of being human in this dehumanizing world. So, together, let us, with courage and hope, acknowledge our weaknesses, both individually and collectively. Let us be built into communities, both transformed and transformational, through the power of Christ that mends us and remembers us. Let us, as the church, hold space for the lonely, the forgotten, and the neglected, for in so doing, we more than likely hold space for ourselves. Christ's love in us, Christ's love with us, Christ's love through us, come what may. Amen.